Hey everyone, Eric Grenier here and welcome to the 11th episode of the Writ Podcast. We're in the final stretch and the debates are now all over. So to discuss this last stage of the election campaign, I'm joined by David Coletto, CEO of Abacus Data and host of the In Focus with David Coletto podcast. Hey, David. Hey, Eric. How you doing? Good. So just to uh, put it on the table, we're recording this on uh, Thursday morning. So uh, we haven't seen the English language debate, so we're going to withhold comment on that. Um, and we don't really know what the impact of the second French language debate was, but you did some polling on the reaction to the Tavia debate. Um, what did you find from that? Well, we found that no one leader did poorly. So that was different from 2019's uh, TVI debate. When we asked people who either watched it or heard about it in Quebec specifically, you know, about half thought Mr. Blanchet and Mr. Trudeau uh, did well. They, they said they, they had a positive reaction to it. A third who watched felt the same about Mr. O'Toole and Mr. Singh. Um, and, you know, again, no more than a quarter said that, that they got a really negative reaction. So on that first question, it, it doesn't look like anyone really stumbled. Mr. Blanchet, Mr. Trudeau maybe had a slightly better night. When we asked people, you know, who they thought did the best at earning their vote uh, or, or the most at earning their vote, Mr. Trudeau came pretty well ahead of Mr. Blanchet, 33 to 22, with Mr. O'Toole at 20 and Mr. Singh at 13. On the flip side, uh, who did the most to lose your vote? Mr. Trudeau also won that one. So uh, <laughs> by six points over Mr. O'Toole. So, you know, on, on the whole, just looking at those questions, it didn't look like anyone really won the night or anyone really lost the night. And then in our tracking, and I think a number of the other polls that we've seen, perhaps except where the block is, and I think there's some, there's some uh, disagreement over where the block is in Quebec, we haven't seen a lot of change in how people feel about the leaders uh, in vote intention in Quebec um, or, or any of those other key metrics that we're looking at. So on the whole, I don't think the debate moved the numbers. But I always say just because they don't move the numbers, it doesn't mean the, de- the debate didn't matter. It just may have reinforced how people were feeling about the leaders um, as they watched it. Right. Yeah. And, and sometimes out of the debate, something can happen that is not really directly related to the debate. Uh, for example, with Aaron O'Toole on gun control, um, you know, he was more or less doing uh, damage control for the, la- for the mm-hmm. days after the French language debate. Uh, not that you know the issue was going to be moving lots of voters who were watching uh, because of it, but you know the it's sort of like the indirect impact of a debate, which is which can be hard to predict. Exactly. So it it creates a conversation that 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 has a tail that goes on and 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 forces you know the leaders to respond or the campaigns to respond to something that came up in that debate. So and that's why sometimes you know the immediate impact isn't isn't obvious, but over the course of the remainder of the campaign, if the frame or the, 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 you know, the so-called ballot question starts to shift because of that debate, then there's no doubt that debate had a big impact on the rest of the campaign. The polls have been neck and neck now for really the last few weeks, uh, but going into the campaign for really the year ahead of, the, uh, ahead of it, when Aaron O'Toole became leader, uh, it wasn't looking like that at all. Uh, has it surprised you that things changed as quickly as they, as, they, as they did. It just took a couple of weeks to really overturn a year's worth of polling. Yeah, it, it is. I, I heard your, your interview last week with, with Corey and, you know, his, his take on it is where I am now. Now, in hindsight, it's easy to say that, you know, I was quoted as saying back in early August, this is as good a time as ever for the Liberals to call it. And, you know, the numbers look really solid. But I think it also shows just how fluid 
the world is and how public opinion is and the difference between how we view our leaders in a crisis during a pandemic when politics isn't as sharp than when a campaign is on. And so in one way, I'm surprised at how how quickly the liberal numbers kind of came back to earth and, and sort of reset back to where they were in 2019. On the other hand, if we had really thought about it and realized that, you know, the prime minister, the liberal leader um, was, was very much, you know, maybe in, in early August as election speculation started to heat up, that, that started to change. Uh, but he was still, you know, seen, I think, as the prime minister dealing with the pandemic as opposed to the liberal leader running for re-election. And, and then the second point is, although in our polling, we, we don't find many people who say they are angry at the liberals and will change their vote because of it for calling this election, most people do say they're annoyed that there is an election. And so I do think that it's had the effect of just calling this election, um, had the effect of reminding people who perhaps didn't like Mr. Trudeau or weren't you know, inclined to vote liberal, it reminded them of why. And, and that is why I think we've, we've got to this point now where it really does look like, except for perhaps some slight exceptions, at least the two main parties, they're pretty much where they were when the 2019 campaign ended. Yeah. Uh, on David Hurley's podcast, he had mentioned from his focus groups that he got the impression from uh, some of the people he was speaking with that they didn't want to reward Trudeau for calling the election. Uh, which I can I can see how that makes sense, right? It's different from, you know, the perception that we heard ahead of the election call and in their first days that people will just be annoyed that their summer's being, uh, you know, interrupted. I, I think there's a much more deep, deeply rooted kind of thing to say that, well, you know, if this is a cynical political move, you don't want to reward someone for that. Uh, I guess the question is whether that is still going to be a, you know, a vote influencing thing when it comes to vote, because at that point you do actually have to choose someone and put your name or put your mark next to one of the, uh, next to one of the parties. And that I think is the, 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 the contest going on in people's minds right now. Those that are inclined to vote liberal say they're open to voting liberal. There's two, there's almost like imagine two little, you know, people on their shoulders on either shoulder, basically saying, don't reward them, don't reward them, don't reward them. And on the other side saying, but I really don't, want Mr. O'Toole. I'm, I'm kind of worried about what the Conservatives might do. And you could see it in the, de- the French debate last night and, and in the last week of the campaign, the Liberals are ratcheting up efforts to try to make that, that little voice on that one shoulder saying Mr. O'Toole is, uh, you know, is, is scary and he'll take us backward in hopes that that overrides the, the feeling that people feel that, that, that you know, Mr. Trudeau should not be rewarded for this. So that's it feels like that's what, at least between the two major parties, it feels like that's what the fight is right now over because Mr. O'Toole continues to come back to this idea that um, this election was unnecessary and you shouldn't have called it. And, and Mr. Singh is saying the same thing versus the liberal leader saying there's big stakes here. There's big differences between us. And that's what this election's about. In addition to the, you know, the people who might be switching between the liberals and the conservatives as those between the liberals and the new Democrats. And you've been tracking, uh, you know, those two sets of voters, those who are either liberal conservative or either liberal NDP. How has that been evolving in this campaign and, and how will what they decide end up deciding the outcome? Yeah, well, I mean, the new the, the liberal NDP switcher group represents about one out of five 
uh, electors. So, so it's a large group of the electorate. You know, it, the vote has, 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 has tr tr is trending towards the Liberals. So it does appear, at least in the last week in our final survey that we finished on, on, uh, on Sunday, that they have opened up, you know, a 30-point lead among that group um, over the New Democrats. What's, what's important about this group is almost all of them, 97% would prefer a Liberal government over a Conservative one. They generally have positive views of both leaders, Mr. Singh and Mr. Trudeau. Um, and, and on issues, they're pretty closely aligned. They, they care far more about climate change and Indigenous reconciliation and, and social justice issues as opposed to you know, more conservative-oriented voters would be. So they are like the perfect kind of swing liberal NDP voter. But 40% of them still tell us that they haven't fully made up their minds yet. So they are truly swinging. They, they, they are assessing the landscape. Um, and the number of people who tell us that they would prefer a liberal government over a conservative one, but think the conservatives are going to win is starting to get, is starting to grow. Hmm. And I've always said that's, that to me is a key indicator because if that, and they're about five or 6% of the electorate now, when the election started, it was like one or 2%. So it's still small, but that four or five points could make the difference between the liberals, as you know, winning outright um, or not. And, and so the perceptions around who's winning and who's not winning and the preferences people have for an outcome, I think are starting to take shape. And I think it's being aided by the liberals and the campaign dynamics, but, but that, that liberal NDP switcher group, I think, this is my view, is going to be probably the most important group to explaining what happens uh, on, on September 20th. And the liberal conservative group is just smaller. And are there less of them that are still on the fence? There's actually more of them on the fence. Um, it's smaller. There's only seven or six or seven percent of the electorate say their first or second choice is the liberal and the conservatives. And they're equally right now divided between the liberals and the conservatives. I think for the conservatives, this group is critical. Um, it's also critical for the liberals. I mean, at this stage, when you're tied, you know, one or two points either way can mean a big difference in the seats. Your models, you know, show that. Uh, but more than half of these liberal conservative switchers say they haven't made up their mind. So they are driven by, I think, different prospects. Um, and, you know, they're much more sensitive to being uncomfortable with Mr. Trudeau's calling of the election and much more open to, you know, wanting to feel that Mr. O'Toole is a, is a, a safe and acceptable alternative. So it's a very different, I think, campaign really in speaking to that group than it is to the more progressive liberal um, NDP group. Speaking of, you know, something that's very different in this campaign, and we'll get into some of the methodological differences in the uh, question and answer section, but the People's Party, um, you know, they definitely seem to be more of a factor in this campaign than they were last time uh, in, in all of the polls, whether they're very high or, or, you know, just a little bit lower, they do seem to be at least gaining. So what is your sense of how much of a factor they are and what their almost what their coalition of voters is right now? Yeah. And I, we will come back to that methodology one. Cause I'm, it's funny. I was talking to my colleagues this morning about it, just trying to wrap our heads around it, but yeah, there's no doubt they are playing a bigger role, whether they're at 4% or 11. Um, that's a big difference by the way. And, and the yeah. impact will be significant, but whether it's four or 11, they're still playing in this election in a way they really didn't um, in 2019. 
you know, we don't have in our samples large, large cell sizes. So it's hard to really get a good sense of who they are. But if I combine a few waves together, uh, a few things really stand out to me. One is about 40% of current People's Party of Canada supporters say they voted for the Conservatives in 2019. So that's, that's what we thought and what we hypothesized that a big portion of that vote is coming from the Conservatives. About a third say, or, or about that said, they voted for the People's Party last time. Um, and then the rest are coming from a lot from the Greens, which is, which is really interesting and surprises many people, but doesn't surprise me given sort of some of the quirky nature of the Green Coalition. And, and there's a sizable number of, you know, those who are against vaccinations and, 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 and being forced to do kind of things like that. Um, there's this interesting generational split. A lot of younger men are really attracted to the People's Party um, than, than um, certainly younger women, but, but also the other age brackets. Um, so that's, that's unique uh, with the People's Party. But what, what unites them clearly is a, a deep dissatisfaction with you know, the system. Um, these are, they are very much protest voters. And they've been united in, in having, I think, a platform to finally outlet their frustration over what the last two years has meant. Because these are folks who don't think government should be restricting what they do. I see everything that government's done, whether federal or provincial, as overreach. And the last straw, I think, has been how uh, this campaign has politicized vaccinations and has allowed Mr. Bernier to, to help consolidate some of those most extreme and angry people when it comes to, to mandatory vaccines or, or vaccine passports. So it is a, a ragtag coalition, but it is still much more likely to be hurting the conservatives than any other party at this point and probably attracting people who don't normally engage in politics um, in, in, in some way that in some way that I think Mr. Trump was able to do. We speak what Mr. Bernier is saying is no doubt so different than what any other federal party leader has ever really said, right? He is so outside the mainstream of Canadian politics that there is a small audience for that that has never heard someone talk like that before. But, you know, you're, you're describing, you know, a young man uh, doesn't really believe in the system, might not have been engaged in politics before. It sounds like someone who normally you wouldn't bet would go out to the polls, right? So, and I know you can't know this, so, uh, you know, I'm putting you on the spot, but does the PPC have a turnout problem or are they so energized that they actually have a turnout advantage? Great question. I think, and this is maybe a cop-out answer, I think it could be either of those. Right. Um, and and I'm, I'm inclined right now to be leaning towards the, uh, I'm going to go vote. I'm angry. And, and anger is a very powerful motivator. Just in the small sample that I had in our most recent survey, when we asked them, you know, are you definitely going to vote? Are you likely to vote? Are you not going to vote in this election? Uh, those who say they support the People's Party uh, are, are as likely, if not slightly more likely, although it's not fully statistically significant, to say that they will be voting. So I don't see this as, you know, I'm answering a survey and expressing my anger by saying I'm going to vote for that party I really have never heard of. I think increasingly there is a, a audience that is engaged and has come to know this party and seem motivated to want to, to vote for it. Now, you know, I think we have to be careful when we equate, you know, 200 people coming out to a Max Bernier rally in Manitoba outside as a groundswell of support for the party. But if you are willing to come out to a rally, 
Um, that suggests to me there's some energy there. And I, and I don't think Max Bernie was getting these kinds of rallies in 2019. So if we use just comparative measures, um, there seems to be more activity. And the party, given it's had two years to become better organized, appears to be more organized. I just, in Ottawa Centre even, I noticed more campaign signs, not on lawns necessarily, but on public property, suggesting they may even have more organization than they did in 2019, which would help with turnout too. Yeah. I, anecdotally, I, I've seen people mention that in other places too, that they're surprised by the number of signs. So um, yeah, maybe this is, uh, maybe we shouldn't be surprised if they do a little bit better maybe than some of the polls, because in the last campaign, they underperformed, right? No one really had them under 2%. They, most polls, if I remember, had them more like two or three, um, and they came in a little bit under that. Yeah. Um, I just want to, we'll close on this and then we'll get to some of the questions after, but uh, based on like what you're looking at in terms of the, you know, the motivations, the desire for change, those switcher voters, what is the scenarios that lead to either a conservative win or a liberal victory with a, at least a, you know, a, a similar amount of seats as last time. So I think based on where things are now would be considered a good result for them. So what, what is the, you know, a culmination of things that produces either of those results. I think for the conservatives to win, and, and I'm not of the view they have an easy path to a majority. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's still, you know, that would be a surprise to me, a shock in a way if they, if they pulled off a majority, but they can win a plurality in the house, um, whether that allows them to form government, whole other conversation that yeah. a pollster should not be part of. Um, but I think that they win because liberal inclined voters um, either stick with other options, New Democrats, the Greens, um, the Bloc. I know there's not a lot of overlap between the Liberals and the Bloc, but some of them might. uh, Because at the end of the day, people say, Aaron O'Toole isn't that scary. And I'm still really disappointed at, at Mr. Trudeau for either calling this election or what he's done in the last six years or a combination of both. And so they they benefit from that disillusionment with the liberals, perhaps lower turnout uh, among liberal oriented voters that, that then gives the Tories an advantage. That to me is how they do it, because I see not a lot of evidence that Mr. O'Toole has made a lot of ground convincing those, you know, uh, uh, liberal conservative switchers or even some of those, you know, maybe the, right now they're not considering uh, when the campaign started, they weren't considering the conservatives, but now more are that they're ready yet to vote conservative. I don't, I think the last week has, has made that harder. So that's how I think that the conservatives win. For the liberals, it's, it's pretty straightforward. It's, they've got to see the new Democrats down closer to 16 or 15% than at 21 or 22. And, and we know that that happened in 2019. Uh, the polls overestimated for the most part, the new Democrats, you know, we're, we're recording this before the debate tonight, the English debate. I think that will be, Job number one for Mr. Trudeau is to continue to raise the stakes of this campaign, highlight the differences between him and Mr. O'Toole, and remind uh, those soft New Democrat supporters that an O'Toole government takes the country back on the things they care most about, climate change, Indigenous reconciliation, health care, and, and general equality, whether that be housing or, um, or, or child care. So, that's that's the path. It's pretty simple. It's simpler, I think, for the liberals. Not necessarily easier to achieve, um, but but both have a a clear path to be able to do it. It just now depends on how people react to these final days of the campaign. 
Hey, I'm Brett Chang. And I'm Jay Rosenthal. And we're here to tell you about Canada's top and only and only daily business news podcast. It's called The Peak Daily, and every morning we get you up to speed on the need-to-know Canadian and global business stories. And we do it without all the jargon that can make business news a little... A little dull? Dull, exactly. And did you mention we do it all in just seven minutes? Six minutes if we fast-forward through all of your dad jokes. Well, I prefer to call them rad jokes, Brett. See what I mean? Come for the daily business news, stay for the dad jokes. Join us and thousands of Peak Pals every morning to start your day smarter. Find The Peak Daily wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right. Well, normally I answer questions in uh, the Q&A segment, uh, but David has generously uh, agreed to answer some of your questions about the polls. So we, I got some on Twitter and, um, you know, we kind of mentioned it uh, earlier what that we we're going to talk about this. So uh, Tristan on Twitter asked uh, whether you could talk uh, about the differences between the IVR and the online surveys in terms of how, both one in terms of how they're compiled, but also why we seem to be getting different results because we've seen for the People's Party in the online polls, Usually in the three to four percent range, uh, sometimes five. In the IVR polls for Main Street and Ecos, we've seen recently eight, nine, uh, or ten percent of the vote, and in some regions of the of the country, uh, double digits for the PPC. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also, and we mentioned it also, the block. Uh, some of the IVR polls tend to have tended to have the block quite low, and uh, the online polls are generally not showing as much movement. So, <laughs> explain. Yeah. Um, let's, let's start research methods 101. Let's, let's do an hour on this, but no, um, I think there's a number of theories that we won't know for sure, uh, that, that might explain this. One is are people who are inclined to vote for the people's party going to sign up for online panels that we use leisure uses, you know, all the online pollsters use. I don't know the answer to that. Uh, it, it makes sense to me that they would be less likely to, you know, take part because they seem like anti-system type voters who don't want to, you know, be part of giving their views on not just politics, but, but consumer products and other things like that. So that's one theory. Um, and, 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 but, but on the other hand, you know, I think particularly the IVR polls are, are much more uh, uh, a victim of, of response bias, meaning dependent on, on the, at the mood of, of certain groups in the electorate, if they're angry, if they're agitated, if they're excited, are they more likely to actually not just pick up the phone, but when they find out it's a survey about politics, complete it and get through the whole thing. I think that, that explains some of what's going on. And so the result is it's probably somewhere in the middle is, is where the People's Party support actually is. So it's probably, you know, our online polls are probably underestimating their latent support right now out there. And I think the IVR polls are probably overestimating it. I think Nano's had them at, you know, 5.6% this morning. That seems probably at a a more reasonable place um, because now you're talking to a live interviewer. um, And so that might take some of the the, the response bias out of it. The other thing I do wonder about IVR, and, and I'm not in a position to really answer this, but I'll speculate that because it's so much harder to get young people, uh, particularly young men, to answer telephone surveys, especially automated ones, is the waiting over um, overestimating uh, the People's Party support because it's so heavily, uh, because such so much of their support comes from young men. I don't know if that's the case. I, I, Keto and, and Keto Maggi and, and Frank Graves might be able to answer that, but that to me is a hypothesis that I'd want to test uh, because we saw that. In some of the wonky polls in the U.S., uh, there was one that was done at uh, from the University of Southern Cal- California, 
and and they kept showing in 2016 that 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 you know Trump was doing really well among young men, but it was because they had like three young men in their sample, and one of them was voting, one of them was an African American who was voting for Trump, and that kind of completely um, messed up their their weights. So I wonder if weighting is a, a part of what's going on in in the IVR polls as well. Well, that brings me uh, a little bit to one of the questions I got from Jeff Hitchcock. Um, so he, he put it this way. How do you factor between purposefully false information? We've talked before uh, way on the old podcast about um, how you kind of screen out people who are giving false kind of information. So I'd be curious to hear that. But also he, he says like uh, sort of aberration voters, for example, more or less like that a voter in the uh, Dornsife polls, I think he lived in Chicago, who was skewing an entire national sample because they didn't have enough yeah. uh, young uh, black men in their samples. So they had to overweight them. So how do you control for making sure that you don't have sort of a unicorn in your sample and mm -hmm. also people who are purposefully trying to mislead, mislead you as a pollster? So on the, on the misleading side, I mean, we, we, we often, particularly on the online surveys, have the, have the benefit of being able to put a number, because our surveys are generally longer, people are willing to, to, to answer more questions online. Uh, we can put in some quality control measures that catch people who are just clicking through or are just randomly answering questions by, you know, putting variations of the same question worded slightly different in, in, in a positive or a negative frame and try to really identify those who are obviously not answering the questions correctly. Um, we don't get a lot of those um, and we, we, we take them out um, when we do. For those that, that, you know, really lie outright, um, I don't think there's enough of them, you know, in our survey to fundamentally push the overall results, especially in like the large sample surveys that we're doing, where you've got, you know, 2000 surveys um, done over a weekend, if even, you know, 30 or 40 at most are, are genuinely lying. The question I always look at is, are they lying systematically? Are they all saying they're voting one way, but they won't? If it's, if it's random, then it's just random noise that gets naturally, it just sort of filters away and we don't even notice it. Um, if it becomes more systematic, then that becomes a problem. But I don't see any evidence of, of that one. Um, in terms of the weighting um, and, and how do we make sure we, you know, my approach has always been to make sure we have large enough sample sizes of the key demographic and regional uh, subgroups that when we wait, we aren't attributing, you know, as you said, uh, a high weight to somebody uh, because they fit a particular demographic and regional profile. So that's how you solve for that. Um, and so on average, you know, and this is, we're getting really technical here, but I don't like putting a weight that's higher than like one, one and a half on, on any given person, because then, you know, if, if only even 30 of them exist in the, in the sample that we have, if they are reporting voting in a very different way than that group would actually do, then they're going to distort the sample. So stratified sampling means you, you, you aim to get so many women so many men, so many uh, people in different age categories, region, uh, education, and then use weighting to make subtle adjustments uh, to the data. So if you actually look on our website and you look at our counts for weighted and unweighted among the demographics, there's not huge differences because I don't want to use weighting to model the data. I'm using weighting to just adjust and make sure it's as representative of, of the population as we absolutely can. On this question from Thierry Soucy, um, 
Uh, the question is a little long, but I'll, I'll read it. Are pollsters taking into account the uncertainty and who will vote in this election? With the pandemic, the usual pattern might be different. In the US, you have all registered and likely voters in polling reports, but here you generally just have top line numbers. So that question about how do you, you know, what the challenge, I guess, in determining the difference between the general population and the voting population and whether uh, pollsters should be trying to guess at turnout, which I think is usually a bad idea, but what do you think? <laughs> I've, I've tried over the last, over the 12 years I've been doing this with Abacus or almost just over 11 years, um, tried various ways of trying to predict how people are going to vote. I've done things like what the Pew Center used to do and ask like five or six questions. Do you know where your polling booth is? How interested are you in the election? Did you vote last time? How likely are you to vote this time? And create some kind of index that then ascribes like a score uh, to each voter in our in our sample, and then that bases you know their their value in the sample. Um, in the UK, some pollsters just ask one question on a scale from zero to ten: How likely are you to vote? And then if you vote, if you say one out of ten, you're only worth a tenth. <laughs> Your response is right. worth only a tenth of somebody who says ten out of ten. In this election, um, and we did it in 2019, and this is always something pollsters I, I know. Um, because we're, we're held to account by folks like you, Eric, if we put out too many numbers on elect, you know, the, our last poll, if we say, well, it could be this and it could be this. Um, we ask one question that I think is working. And that is, you know, thinking about the next federal election, which of the following best describes how you are currently feeling about voting. I will definitely be voting. There's no doubt about it. I'll probably vote, but I'm not that motivated. I probably won't vote, but I might be persuaded to, and I definitely won't vote. 70, about 70% of our sample uh, says they will definitely be voting in this election. That's pretty close uh, to turnout last time. It was 67. Uh, turnout in 2015, I think, was 69 or close to 70. Yes, that's still higher, uh, but I think it's a good measure. So I'm going to use that. Um, in, and I, we, right now we're releasing both our full sample uh, ballot in horse race and those that say they're definitely going to vote. And there is a slight difference. Conservatives have a two-point advantage over the Liberals among definite voters. It's tied among everybody. Um, and I'll probably uh, use that in, in making the final kind of estimate we do uh, next, I guess, next Sunday, not this Sunday, uh, before Election Day. But it is, it is a big challenge. And the reason I like this question in our sample right now is that when we look at the, the one variable we know is, is strongly related to turnout, um, and that is age, among, in our sample, um, among those under the age of 30, 53% say they're definitely going to vote. Among those 30 to 44, it's 60. 45 to 59, it's 72. And those 60 and over, it's 80. When I looked at the, the estimated turnout by age in 2019, those are pretty close in terms of not just the, the actual number, but in the differences across age. So even in our sample, we've got only about half of young people saying they're going to vote or definitely going to vote versus almost eight out of 10 older. And that makes me, gives me some confidence that it's a pretty good measure to get at that variable uh, turnout rate that we know exists. All right. Well then uh, we'll keep an eye on that. Number. That sounds pretty good. So here's my, uh, my, I just, my last question here. Um, what's, uh, what's the plan for advocates data over this last uh, week and a half? So we are going to, we're going to the field after, uh, well, tomorrow, tomorrow's Friday, people are going to be hearing this. We will have started the survey uh, Friday morning after the debates. We'll have a new poll out uh, likely Monday, maybe Tuesday. And then we're actually going to start 
our own daily uh, tracking, not that we don't have enough of it um, on Monday uh, for the final week of the campaign. And then we'll, we'll do one more snapshot uh, cross-section survey in the final weekend. And, and we'll have our final numbers out on Sunday at some point, probably later in the day as we try to make sense of it. So I haven't decided yet how we're going to display the difference between our tracking poll and not, but we'll probably just post a, kind of a dashboard on Twitter. So, so follow me on Twitter and I'm sure Eric will, will also reshare, but that's, we're going to do a few different things in the, in the final days. Cause I think it feels like if there's going to be movement, it's going to start happening, you know, after these debates. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. So I'm looking forward to that. Uh, so, and this was a lot of fun. So thanks a lot, uh, David. I really appreciate taking the time. Uh, I know you're busy. Uh, everybody's busy. You're just involved in this campaign. So really appreciate you coming on here and, um, and uh, sharing your insights. It's always fun, Eric, because we get to talk about things that I don't always get to talk about and, and keep up the, the really awesome work you're doing. It's great to talk to you. All right. And uh, thanks again to David Coletto for that. Be sure to check out his podcast, In Focus with David Coletto. Uh, he gives updates on uh, on the latest findings from his, his polling from Abacus Data. I'll just spend a, a minute here to uh, take a look at where things stand in the polls in the poll tracker that I'm running for uh, the CBC. The Conservatives are still leading in it. They currently have 33.5% as of the update that was from uh, done on Thursday. Uh, the Liberals are at 31.6%. So we're actually seeing that the gap between the two parties is right now 1.9 points. We haven't actually seen it to be uh, that narrow for a little while. And we have seen that the Conservative numbers are starting to come down from a peak and the Liberals are coming up from a trough. So, uh, you know, this is a perfect storm for uh, a hell of a last week where it's going to be very, very close. You know, Democrats are still at 20%. They've just been at 20% for this whole campaign. It's just not moving around. Their numbers are very, very solid. And it's a good number for them. But again, I keep talking about this and I'll keep harping on it. Will that number come out? You know, we heard David talk about uh, turnout impact. The NDP's voter coalition is disproportionately made up of people who do not vote in the same kind of numbers as people who support the conservatives or even the liberals. Um so for the NDP, if they can hold 20% going into election day, that's probably good. It probably means they'll end up quite a bit higher than they were back in 2019, but it doesn't necessarily mean they'll get 20%. The Bloc Québécois is at six at the national level, but we were talking about the People's Party, 5.3% now in the poll tracker. That's the highest they've been. They've really just been picking up because we have seen that while they are gaining in the IVR polls with some pretty big numbers, they are up in the Nanos poll, which is a telephone poll. And even in the in the online pollsters, Angus Reid, for example, um, had them at 5%. So we are seeing that their numbers are coming up regardless of the methodology. The question is, are they at 3, 4, 5% or are they at uh, 8, 9, 10? Because if you just look at some of the latest polls, Main Street, 8%. For the People's Party, Ecos 10%, uh, Bananos had them at 5, uh, Abacus had them at 3, Angus Reed Institute at 5, Ipsos only had them at 2. So there is a huge variation there, and we're not seeing that variation for any of the other parties. And it's not really clear who's being impacted by it. If we look at the Ecos, for example, 10% for the PPC, 34% for the Conservatives. In Ipsos, there's 2% for the PPC and 35% for the Conservatives. So it's not really making that big of a difference in terms of the Conservative vote, which is generally 33 to 35%, regardless of the methodology. Uh, it's really just this difference between the People's Party that's standing out. The Greens continue to drop. They're now at 3% in the poll tracker. And again, I'll say it every time, they're not running a candidate in 
25% of the country. So they're not going to get 3%. They're not going to be able to manage that. Uh, if a lot of voters are telling pollsters that they're going to vote for the Greens, but go to the ballot box and find out, oops, there's no Green candidate here. Uh, so, you know, the Greens are probably on track for their worst result in terms of the popular vote. We'll see if Annamie Paul's performance in the two debates this week will have any impact. Uh, but, you know, they need something to make sure that they do not get one of those very bad results. And as I, was, I tweeted on Thursday, there was a poll by Insights West done in British Columbia and had the Greens at only 11% on Vancouver Island, which is roughly half or less than half of what they got last time. So the two seats that they hold still at dissolution, I don't know, you know, uh, I'm not sure if they're going to be able to hold them. Elizabeth May, you would think, in Sandwich Gulf Island is going to be fine, but with these kinds of shifts, who knows? In terms of the seat projection right now, the Liberals are at 142, the Conservatives are at 133, the New Democrats at 36, the Bloc Québécois at 26, and the Greens at 1, that being Elizabeth May's seat. The People's Party still at 0. While they are doing very well in some of these polls, it's not really clear where any of it is concentrated, so it is hard to see where they could get enough support to win a seat. You know, they would need at least 30-35% in a one riding to benefit from splits and win, not obvious where that would be. Maxim Bernier, maybe he could do that in both, but we've seen that the People's Party is weakest in Quebec. A lot of the gains that we've seen have been in Ontario, BC, Alberta, not in Quebec. So it'll still be a challenge for Bernier to win both because the Conservatives seem to be doing okay in Quebec. So they're likely to hold their vote that they had there. Um, so it'll be a challenge for the People's Party. In terms of the uh, likely outcomes, uh, we now have the Liberals with a 58% chance of winning the most seats, 45% being a plurality, 13% a majority. So they are still the favorites right now, and that is improving because there was a time when the Liberals and the Conservatives were more or less neck and neck in the probabilities of emerging with the most seats. The Conservatives now have a 42% chance of winning the most seats, 38% it's a plurality, just a 4% chance of majority. The only really scenario uh, that produces a Conservative majority would be a huge polling miss. Whereas the Liberals only need to be outperforming the polls, get some advantage in terms of vote efficiency to emerge with at least 170 seats. Regionally, the Conservatives are ahead throughout Western Canada, but BC is a close race, 32 for the Conservatives, 30 for the New Democrats, 27 for the Liberals. Uh, that is a place that is getting more competitive as this election is going on. The Greens are only at 6% there. Um, that's half of what they had in the last election. Again, it's just not going very well for them. In Alberta, the Conservatives are at 54 to 20 for the NDP, 17 for the Liberals, 7% for the PPC. This is where they're strongest. Uh, not really obvious to me that there's more than just a handful of seats that are up for grabs for the Liberals and the NDP with these kinds of numbers. But that PPC number... Uh, though a lot of it's probably going to be outside of Calgary and Edmonton, if enough of uh, that conservative vote actually goes to the PPC in some of these close ridings in Calgary and Edmonton, uh, maybe the Liberals or the NDP can pull off some unexpected upsets. In the Prairies, um, Conservatives are leading 45 to 24 for the NDP, 22 for the Liberals, and 6 for the PPC. Um, here again, the polls that we've seen suggest Saskatchewan is pretty dominated by the Conservatives. Maybe the NDP could pull off an upset in uh, Saskatoon or, or the Liberals in the north of the province. Um, Manitoba, also it looks like the Conservatives are generally ahead there, but not much difference we should expect from the last election in terms of the seat outcome. In Ontario, uh, the, conser the Conservatives are falling back a little bit. They're now two points behind the Liberals, 36.4 for the Liberals and 34.5 for the Conservatives. 
Uh, that's very good news for the Liberals because they need to be ahead in Ontario to ensure a plurality of seats. The NDP is at 19 and the People's Party is at 6. They're at 6 in Ontario, which is quite high. In Quebec, 33% for the Liberals. That vote seems to be holding for them. The bloc has fallen to 25%, the Conservatives at 20 the NDP at 14 and the People's Party is just at 3.8. So there you see where the challenge is for Maxime Bernier. And then in Atlanta, Canada, uh, the Liberal vote has come down quite a bit. They're at 40%, 33 for the Conservatives, 20 for the NDP, and 4 for the PPC. Here for the Greens, this is really the most uh, catastrophic area because they had just over 12% of the vote in Atlanta, Canada, most of it in New Brunswick and PEI. Now they're just at 3%. That is really not good, and um, it's going to be hard for them to win uh, or be competitive in any of those seats where they were pretty close, or at least in second, in PEI New Brunswick last time. Now, this is a close race. The Liberals have uh, a deficit nationally. They're only head by a few seats in the projections. We've seen some other projections from Philippe uh, J. Fournier, for example, who have the Conservatives sometimes ahead in the seat count. So it's easy to imagine that with these kinds of numbers, we could be heading towards a very, very, very close election night. Um, So it just shows how important the debates this week could turn out to be. But we'll have to wait and see what impact will come from those debates. Okay, continuing our series on the results of the most recent federal election campaigns as part of the Every Election Project, we've now reached the 2015 federal election. This was the first election held according to our fixed election date laws. The 2015 vote came at the end of Stephen Harper's one and only majority mandate, and nearly 10 years after he first became prime minister. Harper was, of course, still the leader of the Conservative Party, but the official opposition was led now by Tom Mulcair, who took over as leader of the NDP in the 2012 leadership race uh, that followed the death of Jack Layton. After being handed their worst election in history, the Liberals chose Justin Trudeau as their new leader in 2013, and the party immediately jumped to first place in the polls. By 2015, the Conservatives were struggling. The Mike Duffy affair in the Senate had sapped the party's support, and the desire for change was pretty high. The Liberals were the vehicle of change at the beginning of 2015, but that shifted over to the NDP after Rachel Notley's upset win in the Alberta provincial election in the spring. Mulcair's NDP entered the summer as the frontrunner and was still in front in the polls when Stephen Harper dissolved Parliament in early August, kicking off a 78-day campaign. I remember that campaign. It was long. The NDP began to drop in the polls, and by the beginning of September, the New Democrats, Conservatives, and Liberals were effectively tied. I remember there were days when the three parties were literally tied. With some strong debate performances by Trudeau, and with the Liberals outflanking the NDP to the left, the Liberals moved ahead in the polls and were the favorites to win by election night. The only question was whether they'd get a majority. Of course they did. On the night of October 19, 2015, the Liberals won 184 seats. This was a gain of 148 from the last election, if we're using the new boundaries, because there were new boundaries that came in. They took 39% of the vote. That was up 21 percentage points. This is a huge swing. It's an enormous swing from one election to the next. The Conservatives, they won 99 seats, a drop of 89 from the new boundaries that were put into place after the 2011 election. They had 32% of the vote, a drop of 8 percentage points. The New Democrats won 44 seats. That was down 65. Uh, They took 20% of the vote, down 11 points. The Bloc Québécois, which was still led by Jules Duceppe, he 
stepped in as leader uh, just a few months before the election after Mario Beaulieu decided he wasn't going to be successful. So Gilles Duceppe came in for one more kick at the can. The bloc won 10 seats, which was an increase of six, uh, but Gilles Duceppe was not one of those who was elected. The Greens, under Elizabeth May, took just one seat and 3% of the vote nationwide. They dropped less than a percentage point. Uh, it was really just about getting Elizabeth May re-elected here. The Liberals won the most seats and votes in British Columbia, Manitoba, Ontario, Quebec, all of Atlantic Canada, and the North. They were up 22 points in British Columbia with big gains in the Lower Mainland. They won four seats in Alberta. They gained 28 points in Manitoba and all but one seat in Winnipeg. They were up 20 points in Ontario. They won 80 seats with gains in the North. In the East, they swept Toronto and most of the GTA. They were up 22 points in Quebec. They won 40 seats there, mostly around Montreal and the Outaouais, but also some seats in Quebec City and the eastern portion of the province. They swept all 32 seats in Atlantic Canada, with a majority of the vote in every province. Conservatives, they won the most seats and votes only in Alberta and Saskatchewan. They dropped 16 points in BC and Manitoba. They dropped 9 points in Ontario as the party went from 73 seats on the smaller 2011 map to 33 on the bigger one. They were swept out of Atlantic Canada and took less than 20% of the vote in every province there except New Brunswick. The one bright spot for the Conservatives was that the party went from 5 to 12 seats in Quebec, despite only a tiny popular vote gained, but it did re-establish the Conservatives in Quebec and uh, they held most of their seats and still do today. The results meant that this was the end of Stephen Harper's government and his leadership of the Conservative Party. The NDP didn't finish first in any province and was second only in Saskatchewan, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador. They lost votes in both BC and Saskatchewan, but actually gained seats as Conservatives dropped. They lost nine points in more than half of their Ontario caucus. They dropped 18 points in Quebec and went from 59 to 16 seats. And they were also swept out of Atlantic Canada. Tom Mulcair would stay on as leader, but would lose a leadership review in 2016. The Bloc's vote share in Quebec dropped by four points, but their seats actually went up to 10. They were still short of official party status. Gilles Duceppe, he was not elected, and he stepped down as leader again. The party would have another four years of turmoil ahead of it before Yves-François Blanchet would take over from Martin Wallet. The Greens didn't do much better than in 2015, but their vote was up a little bit in BC and jumped in places like New Brunswick and Prince Edward Island, which foreshadowed their future success in the region. Trudeau's government would be sworn in in November 2015 and would get a full four years in office until the next election in 2019, which would prove to be a bit of a challenge. And that's it for the podcast this week. Thanks to everyone who has subscribed to the writ.ca, and if you haven't, you can head over there to subscribe and get full access to all the content including bonus podcast episodes. I'll have another one out on Monday morning. I also just wanted to give a plug to the Strategist podcast and the great work that's being done by Zane Belge and Corey Hogan. It's a lot of fun to listen to and uh, keep up the good work, you two. Okay, I'll be back late next week with the last pre-election episode of the RIT podcast. Until then, have a great week. Get out and vote in the advanced polls if you want to. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.